Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Wilder podcast. How are you, Tom? I'm good. I mean, just about getting all the mud from out of the nooks and crevices that, that it's getting in at the moment. But other than that, pretty good. Oh, there is way too much mud at the moment where we live. Following the excavations of last week's episode, we have excavated way too much mud over our hard standing to be... It's like a swamp getting the kids from the car into the house, which is doing nothing for my house pride. <laughs> is that the right word? Our house pride. Yeah, our house Yeah. No, it is. It's got to the point where I literally pick them up from the kitchen door and carry them to the car because they just want to get their school shoes muddy by the time they get there because... We've excavated exactly the right amount of mud in order to achieve the mission of what we want to do with the cables and everything else. But the problem is that's going to be an enduring issue for this basically this season. Now we're now into the muddy season and we've not helped it by making more mud. The dogs are definitely not allowed outside anymore. <laughs> They're inside dogs. Yeah. Little dog litter in the corner. Uh, yeah, so that was good. I guess I'm curious because there's been a lot of rain over the last week or so. And what have you noticed, Tom, about the effects of that rain? This is a leading question, Chloe, and I resent that. Last week, listeners will remember that I was very proud of my digger activities around the land, channeling my inner spirit animal, which is a wild boar, in order just to, again, start that defielding process, uncovering or taking off the top level of grass, uncovering the dirt and soil underneath to allow, hopefully in the future, seeds, etc., to germinate. Now, I stopped at the point, I knew what a wild boar looks like and what kind of effect it has on the land, so I stopped when I thought I'd achieved it. But what I didn't really realise or appreciate is the amount of mud that gets kind of spread over perfectly fine grass. And it looks like you've had more of an effect on the ground than you have. But then as soon as it rained recently, it's just basically washed all the mud off the perfectly healthy grass that I haven't managed to remove. And so it's probably about a third less effective than I was expecting. So lesson learned for next time, be more destructive. And I guess it also shows just how resilient grass is. Like it's amazing stuff. It just keeps on coming. It's all right. Not next time, Chloe. Got it, got it. Excellent. I think the other thing that we've kind of, we've been away for a week and we just come back. The other thing we were excited to check out is some of our leaky, woody debris. Have I got that right? Correct. You wouldn't let me talk about this last week, which, which I thought would be really interesting, but it, we, 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 we don't had, want to talk too much last week. We did. You know what about that? It's been really nice the response we've had from people about that episode. Yeah. How they've really appreciated the journey and us talking open and honestly about it. For those people that have reached out and responded like that, I really appreciate the feedback. Thank you very much. If anyone didn't like it, feel free to give us constructive feedback going forward as well, because that's what we like. Hello at grangeproject.co.uk. So back to leaky woody debris. I know it's exciting stuff, this, right? So Tom from Natural Resources Wales reached out and said, look, Tom and Chloe, we've got some funding. My mission is to reduce the risk of flooding in populated areas. Can I come and create some leaky woody debris on your land in order to achieve that? Um, having absolutely no knowledge or expectation of what he was talking about. We were like, yeah, come on then, let's crack on. So Tom turned up with his chainsaw wielding partner and proceeded to give us essentially a masterclass in Leaky Woody Debris. And it was a really great day. Before we go any further, Tom, can you just explain what on earth Leaky Woody Debris is? <laughs> I'll do my best. Maybe we should step it back a bit. So when Tom originally suggested it, you know, when we were talking about it together, we were talking about, well, is this going to increase biodiversity? Because that's what we're interested in. How do we help protect the ecology of the planet, right? That's what we're trying to do or increase it and improve it. And this leaky woody debris really is designed say, to mitigate flood risk further down the river. At the time, I didn't think it was in line with increasing biodiversity on the land. But you came up with a really fair point, which was... It's like a beaver? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> it's is part of the ecology. Humans are part of the ecosystem and therefore oh, yeah, protecting. Yeah, 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 okay, fine. 
<laughs> so humans, humans are part of the ecosystem. Uh, and I was like, yeah, all right, fair one. Can't argue with that. So that's when we invited Tom and his chainsaw wielding friend over. And it was a masterclass in it. And essentially it's taking natural wood adjacent to the streams and where you think water may flow during a extreme weather event and creating essentially like speed bumps that when it's normal weather, normal raining, normal stream, it doesn't interfere with the water flow at all. And it's quite bizarre watching them put it in because they're like, they'll put it in and the water just keep flowing over. That's that done. Okay, let's move on to the next one. You're like, well, hang on, it's done nothing. Why should we put this in? But it's there for those extreme weather events so that when it does get torrential, it will increase the water flow to those streams. The streams, of course, will then increase in height and speed. It will then hit the leaky woody debris and essentially back up and delaying that torrent of water down and create mini dams like a beaver. And then eventually those mini dams will then overflow and then it will go down to the next leaky woody debris, which will then become a mini dam and then overflow and move on. And what we are doing by creating up to 30 or 40 of these installations on the land is by delaying the flow from our stream down to the rivers and beyond into the built up areas. So if Tom can achieve this on other farms around the area, there's a real chance it'll make a big difference to reducing the risk of flooding for the human inhabitants of Monmouthshire. And what about any benefits for biodiversity in association with that? Yeah, let's ask an ecologist, but... Come on, you're going to give it a stab. Well, my stab is, it essentially is behaving like a beaver. And so there, so anything we can do to create that areas for increased kind of small ponds or scrapes, even for small periods, I think will only help. So there's something about wet is good for biodiversity. And if we're even slightly slowing water down, then we're going to have more wet, which is better habitat for a wider range of invertebrate and plant life, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, we definitely need to speak to oncologists when they come here because I think there's we're not doing it justice. There's definitely, just watching it, you can see there's there's, there's more habitats being built because of the leaky woody debris. And going on from that, again, in line with the main effort for Grange Project, Tom and his team are coming back to run courses now in creating leaky woody debris, etc. in February and beyond for people to help them understand the value that it brings. So now it's, this, that hopefully will be our first educational course run off from the Grange Project. It's very exciting. I'm getting ready. My baking's getting ready. I'm getting prepared. <laughs> so, I mean, that has gone on for longer than we were expecting, but hopefully people have found that particularly interesting. Well, if not, they can have hopefully skipped it by just going straight to the start of the interview. No one skips this bit. This is the, this is, this is, well, this this is, is the X factor. Well, I'm not sure. I think for this particular episode, <laughs> our interview with Lynn is absolutely fantastic. I was just listening back to it before we recorded this bit. Listen back to yourself. I mean, is that um, a bit egotistical? Sorry. You told, you're the podcaster. You told me I've got to listen to learn about how I can do podcasting better. But Lynn is such a fantastic example of someone that is able to really articulate in such an engaging way both their journey and she had so much kind of wisdom and I learned loads from the conversation. It's probably for me been the one that's kind of resonated with me most today in terms of and also generated the most thinking about what we're trying to do here and you know, what that means. And I left very inspired from the conversation. Yeah. Lynn and Sandra are seven years along the journey, a similar journey of what we're hoping to take. So, you know, and I, I think if we can have half the knowledge that they've got in seven years' time, I'll be extremely proud of our journey. So, I think they've done an amazing job and this is a wonderful interview. So, to give the formal introduction, this is Lynn from Lynn Breckcroft. And she and her partner, Sandra, have been regenerating at Lynn Breckcroft for the last seven years. And their story is glorious. And I really hope you enjoy it.
So good morning, Lynn. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here today with us. I am so delighted that you've joined us today because I've been reading your book. I feel a little bit starstruck to meet someone who's authored such a fantastic piece of work that I've really, really enjoyed reading. But for our listeners that might not be aware of you and the work at Lindbergh Croft, could you just talk a little bit about who you are and where you find yourself? Firstly, thank you so much for inviting me to be on your podcast. It's a a real privilege to meet you both virtually and also to find a little bit more about your project and what you're trying to achieve, which is really inspirational and exciting to learn about. And it's really a very similar journey to what we've been on uh, here at Limbrecht Croft over the last seven and a half years. So the kind of story starts really back in 2012, which is when my partner Sandra and I met. Uh, We were living and working just on the edge of London at a big uh, National Trust estate called Clifton on the edge of Maidenhead. And we were there living and working there as rangers. Outdoor job, really loved what we were doing, but felt this kind of strong draw to the land, really wanting to live a kind of a slower, quieter place of life, but really connect with nature. So we did what I describe as, you know, what your parents tell you never to do, which is quit our jobs. Uh, two really nice jobs and moved north to Scotland, which is where Sandra's mum's from. So there was a bit of a family connection. And we spent two years living and working in the borders of Scotland, really as, as tree planters. And that was our first transition from working in the world of conservation to now working in the world of rewilding which was completely new to us so we started to read works by people like you know George Monbiot so we read Feral by George Monbiot and you know just completely loved what he'd written and that book really impacted us we'd started to question what we were eating you know, shifting much more away from buying, you know, meat in the supermarket to maybe only hillshot venison, just all those sorts of things started to become quite critical of farming, started to see what George Monbiot would talk about, about, you know, the sheep wrecked landscapes that we were working in reforesting. And uh, anyway, that was kind of happening in the background. And in the meantime, because we were in Scotland, we now had an opportunity to go and look for some land. So Long and short of it is uh, we've spent about eight months, found nothing. Well, we did find one little place which was far too big and far too expensive. But anyway, we shelved that. Um, But it it kept niggling. It kept niggling. And so one day we realized we were going to be driving right past this particular landholding, which turns out was Limbrecht Croft. And we arrived there for the first time, uh, I think it was about late August, early September 2015, and really kind of fell in love with it. 150 acre land holding, very mixed bag of what would be described as in-by fields. So we've got about six hectares maybe of in-by fields. Then we have about three hectares of woodland and the rest is a mixture of bog and upland, so heather hillside. So I guess what I'm trying to, to paint a picture of you here is that if you were to look at this landscape with maybe kind of traditional farming or traditional agricultural eyes, it would look pretty much rubbish. Mm. Um, but to us it was the land of milk and honey we saw this Mm. incredible biodiversity an opportunity to kind of grow that in this stunning location in the Cairngorms National Park you know on the edge of the Cairngorms Massif and that's when I often think naivety can get you very far in life so we we did everything again that you're told you never should do so we put all of our eggs in one basket quite literally emptied every single pot of cash that we had with some you know help from dear friends and family and moved to Limbrek in March 2016 and the the kind of the story then continues from there, which has been one into learning how to grow our own food, learning how to set up a small scale farming business after being very critical of farming. You would now we you know, we find that this is exactly what we're doing. Producing meat, which is really high quality, which is biodiversity enhancing. And then using all of our learning to really have conversations with people, to try and show people 
you know, what it's like to live and work off the land, but also share our learnings of reconnecting with nature and the power of food and the power of the health that that can give you. So that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm already packing my bags. I'm coming to visit. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's, yeah. We're full. We're full. <laughs> I'm I'm like you said earlier about, you know, you, you did this in order to get a quieter, slower pace of life. Now, mm. I, our most recent episode where I mentioned that, you know, we've never been busier in terms of, I think we're juggling a lot at the moment. Have you, yes. have you achieved this quiet to slower pace of life or is it just different? No and different is the, <laughs> is, the, is, the, is, the, is the answer. So I think what we found and what a lot of people, in fact, in fact, I would say pretty much everybody that's come here has found is that this is a very inspiring place in that, you know, the landscape is big. The opportunities are endless. And so you can't help but come here and think you could do this, you could do this, we could yeah. do that, you could do this, you could do this. And obviously, if you had an endless pot of money and 48 hours in each day, then yes, you could maybe achieve even just a small percentage of that. So we find that everybody that comes here tends to kind of have this, oh my goodness, look at all this potential. And I think we've definitely moved here and thought, oh my goodness, look at all this potential. So the first seven and a half years here have been very, very, very busy. Uh, we've put in fencing, we've brought on animals, we've built buildings, we've planted you know, over 30,000 trees, we've hosted tour groups, we've hosted courses, you know, we've grown our own food, we've put in a butchery, we butcher our animals, you know, I could go on. And I think, you know, where we're at now that we've got everything set up, it's transitioning to a point where you're saying, okay, busy is good, but full is better. So busy can be manic, busy can be crazy, busy can be unstructured, but mm -hmm. full can give high outputs but in a way which is much more kind of balanced and measured. So, and I'm not saying that in any way that I've, I'm being kind of critical or regret of anything that we've done. Everything that we've done has been incredible, but it's like life, isn't it? It journeys and it transitions and it moves from, from one phase to the next. And I think that's kind of where we're at right now. You really take a view of what you're doing and make sure you're optimizing. Well, that's right. And, and philosophers have philosophized about this through the years, you know, saying, you know, for everything from modern day messages of what is it, work smarter, not harder, or, you know, all these kind of things, you know, people have been talking about it for years. And I think they're all really great messages, but you have to get to the point where you're ready to do that and make that transition. So, yeah. I guess I'm curious, if I was sitting here speaking to the kind of Lynn and Sandra of 10 years ago, and we were talking mm -hmm. about what you're doing now, what would be surprising you most about what you're doing now in comparison to what you intended to do when you started looking for Lynn Breckroft? So I can only answer that really from my own personal perspective. Sandra would probably tell you something different. But for me, it's probably the farming element is quite a surprise. I never really put myself in that bracket or envisaged myself going down that route. The, the vision that I had back in the day, which was very simplistic, it was very naive, it was very idealistic, was that quintessential good life vision of, you know, a nice veggie garden, maybe some chickens with some eggs, and then a few camping spots that we'd run seasonally, and that would bring us enough income to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's, that's what it looked like in my head. And we do have all of, we don't have the camping spots, although when people come on courses, they camp here. But, you know, that all has still actually happened. It's just magnified on a grand scale. And uh, and that's been a transition as well that we've kind of, you know, as everything has evolved. And in part, it's because of this incredible inspirational landscape that we live in. 
and also learning our own skills and talents. You know, Sandra isn't just a whiz at growing veg. Basically, in a climate, in altitude and soils where you shouldn't be able to grow anything, you know, she's pretty much made us 100% self-sufficient in our own veg. And she runs this incredible fold of Highland cattle, rare breed pigs, hens, which produced thousands of eggs a year, hundreds of kilos of meat carved out from this place where none of that should work. So, she, you know, her skills are really you know, embedded in that. And and I guess my skills have evolved over the years as I've discovered that I quite like talking to people and yeah. I can write and stuff like that. So all of this has grown as our skills have come out as well, uh, which has been really cool. And two questions, really, just one, yes. taking a step back, would you mind for the listeners explaining what crofting is and kind of relating it to the kind of rest of the UK, better understand that. And secondly, I'm just curious, do you have any expectation for if you know, you're doing this in a very kind of environmental way in terms of producing produce. Mm-hmm. If you were doing it conventionally, do you know what have any expectation of how much it would produce or how much you are above or below kind of the expected yield for the land? No, those are both really good questions, Tom. And I'll, I'll tackle the first one to begin with. I'll try and make it as simplistic as possible. But crofting is unique to Scotland. Okay, it's a unique land holding that's unique to Scotland and not just all of Scotland, actually just part of Scotland. So the, the north and the west usually are where you will find the main what are called crofting counties. And crofting as a, as a land holding, in effect, came out uh, as a result of the Highland Clearances when people were cleared off the lands and uh, ironically replaced with sheep farming, which was seen as being more profitable at the time time. So that's kind of how crofting as a land holding came about. It's a protected piece of land and usually the average size of a croft is five hectares. Now we're about 60 hectares. So we're a much larger croft and we're actually kind of on the eastern fringe of what are called the Crofton counties. But crofting as a way of living is very similar to sort of small scale farming, small holding, that sort of thing. And in this part of the world, Crofts are usually on what would be described in farming language as marginal land. So land that's not really what you would define as being good quality or highly productive, not improved farmland. So that's why it's all a bit roughy tufty. It's a bit rough around the edges. So you might have a nice bit of field. People think, oh, wow, you've got 150 acres. That's incredible. You must be able to do so much. And I'm like, yeah, but like six hectares of that is what you would define as good Okay, Mm. in farming language, the rest is different or (laughs) marginal or, you know, whatever, whatever farming word you want to use, a lot of which I try to avoid using because I find them quite, you know, I find language is very powerful. And I find when we use words like marginal, unproductive, unimproved, we're kind of affirming a belief that it's not any good when that's Mm. actually simply not true. So it's just different to, to what we would see in our vision as being good farmland. So we're a large croft, but we are still a croft. But that's where it kind of blurs the line. I often switch between using the word crofting or farming because if you know about crofting, people think it's small. But we're not small, we're big. So we kind of blur the line. So that's what it is. And crofters particularly, traditionally, have always been good at making the most out of what they've got, working with what you've got. So turning what is poor land into actually something that is fairly productive and generally they've always done it spinning the number of plates at a time so they won't just be cattle crofters they'll have a few cows they'll have a few pigs they'll have a few hens they'll maybe work off site for a few days a week it's very kind of varied and that's what I love about it because it's diverse and to me the core of farming with nature is diversity which doesn't necessarily just reflect in the birds and the bees in the field it can reflect in your business model so that's what I'd say crofting is to begin with 
The second question that you asked, which I think is a really pertinent one and a really important one, is in relation to productivity. And I would guess I would answer that in relation to how we work our farming enterprises here at Limbrek. And something that I always explain to people is that we only carry, in terms of our animal enterprises, and that's only part of what we do, but in terms of our animal enterprises, we only carry the number of animals that we believe have a regenerative impact on the land. Now, that is current. That is our real time. That will change. Okay, it's, it's been higher. It's been lower. It will go higher again. It might go lower again. Because what you're doing is you're constantly responding to one your base health, which is in your soil, which ideally is always incrementally increasing. But two, you're also responding to real-time events. So that could be climate events. That could be cycling of animals that you've had, whereby you think, actually, I want to now give that large area a period of rest for two or three years. So it's never static. So we only carry the number of animals that we believe have regenerative impact on the land. We took over Limbrek seven years ago, but Limbrek had been farmed, we know, for at least 300 years by the original Crofting family. And I would say probably chances are, I don't know for definite, but probably chances are it was continuously farmed. So it was probably continuously farmed in a way maybe it might have been set stocked. So just, you know, animals thrown on the land. We know it was probably ploughed at some point, improved. Again, I use that word with two quotation marks on either Mm -hmm. side. So we know it's had a lot of intervention. So we've taken on a land holding that, yes, has got incredible potential, but it's a landscape that's in, in a process of healing. And it's in the process of healing from the impact that it's had for many centuries of people working and living here. So we're at a place, I would say, that it's a transition point. It's at a healing point. So that means that as the soils heal more, you know, as the land naturally becomes more diverse and more productive, that will then impact on the amount of animals and the amount of food that we can produce. Every single mode that we use to produce animals, so be it, you know, mob grazing of cows in our fields or, you know, mob grazing of hens in our fields or, you know, working with pigs in our woodlands to improve diversity, Every single one has been adapted from somebody who does it on a larger scale. So scale is not the issue here. It's style, it's knowing your land, it's knowing your context, personal and environmental, but it's changeable. And so you can never give a static figure of, in this amount of years, Limbeck will be producing this amount of food. I have no idea how much it's producing. But what I do know is eight years ago, it was zero. And what I'm pretty sure is that, and again, I I can't definitively say this, it's probably more than has ever been produced here. And we're only just getting warmed up. What I really appreciate about what you're saying there is the kind of, I guess it's the kind of wisdom that comes with knowing the land and knowing, going into it, listening to it, understanding the impact. And that feels like wisdom we do not have at the moment at all. (laughs) Being able to kind of read what it's trying to tell us. But, you know, you've got to learn, haven't you? And you've got to learn by spending time listening and being out in the land and I guess I was interested because you talked about this idea of kind of mob grazing and that might mm. be a term for some of our listeners but not for others so I'm wondering if you could just kind of give us a description of what mob grazing involves. Yeah no I'm really glad you've asked that question because again I said earlier about I try to avoid using terms kind of agricultural terms because it often puts you in a box and then I went and used an agricultural yeah. term to put us into a box so I'm going to try and break that down a little bit so that people understand how it is that we work with our team of Highland Cattle So we kind of got into, whenever we took over Limbrek, we looked at the grassland and we thought, oh, we've got to do something with it, you know, because I think that's your natural instinct, isn't it, when you take over a bit of land. And we decided to bring on grazing animals and we decided to work with cattle in particular, highland cattle, because 
they're hardy, they're hairy, and we're in the Highlands, you know, they're the perfect breed for the work that we want them to do. And it's in the context of, of looking at the work that they do in the context of comparing them to, to what larger herbivores would do in the wild. So larger herds or foals would do in the wild. And, you know, they're constantly moving, you know, there's, there's that threat of predators, which is always keeping them on the move. And they're pooing and peeing as they go. And just can't, you've got that constant movement, that constant movement around. The fundamental part of that is that across these large landscapes is that they generally don't come back to the same place that they've been on all that quickly because they're, they've got these kind of large landscapes to move around. So what you're getting there, what you're factoring in naturally is rest. And that's really the key to everything. I think it's actually, in fact, in fact one of the things that I've learned is that it's really the key to everything in life. So you've got these large lands, large animals moving around the landscape grazing a little bit, pooing a little bit. That's kind of helping to, you know, that kind of that's all breaking down, feeding the soil. As it does so, you, you know, you've got all these invertebrates attracted to these cow pats or herbivore pats, which are then bringing in lots of local birds. And, you know, you see how everything's connected. So what we're trying to do on a very small scale is mimic that. So we're trying to mimic that impact and that relationship with the land with for our large herbivores and everything else. So we move the cattle in the summertime. We move them more or less, not exactly, but more or less daily. Uh, so we move them into paddocks that we create using uh, electric fencing. We move them into a paddock. They graze there. They trample some. They dung and you know manure and urine, and then they move on. And so we do that repeatedly over the summer. What we're trying to look for is rest in the area that they've they've just moved out of. So we're trying to always increase our rest period. So I think this year we got seventy seven day rest period peak at one point. So that means that the area that the cattle have just come off from have had no further grazing impact for 77 days. That means that all of your wonderful grasses and wildflowers can recover. Uh, those, they can grow their solar panels back. Any that have seed heads on can flower and seed and they can spring off new life somewhere else. And so that's what we're trying to do. So this kind of what is now described as mob grazing, or some people talk about it as uh, things like holistic planned grazing, or it's got all sorts of names. That's the premise of what we're trying to follow here at Limbrek. And I think, we, you know, we've seen a couple of really good things. So one is we've seen, to, to use the farming language, we've seen productivity and diversity in the fields increase. We're starting to see really interesting impact on local bird populations. So my favourite is the curlew. So anybody that knows anything about conservation and rewilding will know the curlew. It's a, it's a red list RSPB species, massively in decline. And I talk about at Limbrek, we grow curlew like weeds in that we have these really nice areas of habitat, of boggy area where they breed. And what we started to notice is as we started to use the cows in our fields, the curlew would come off the boggy areas and bring their chicks up into the fields and start to follow the cattle because they knew that the cow pats were full of invertebrates that would then feed their young. So I've sat before in our living room and I've looked out onto the field and we've got a track and I've watched curlew chicks, you know, going across the track. What we've also seen is just general kind of increase in invertebrate activity, general increase in, in, you know, in bird activity as a result of that. So we're already seeing after just, what, five years of doing this, real-time impacts of the benefits of the cattle. And I just like to really emphasize that because they, they can get a bit of a hard rap. I think that's really interesting because I guess one of the debates perhaps within the rewilding sphere is what role do livestock play in helping to increase biodiversity in the land? And what I'm hearing is that the intention behind all of what you're doing is around regeneration. Yet, you know, we've been told, oh, well, you don't put anything on the iron for a few years. Or some people are saying, well, what's never been criticised for farming at all as opposed to rewilding? And mm. how do you find the balance perhaps between the dirty word of overgrazing and but also the kind of the hoped for impact of 
increasing biodiversity as quickly as possible, g- given the kind of nature crisis we're in. Yeah, I really love that question. And I love that you're you're bringing this up because I think it's really interesting when we talk about rewilding in the absence of people and we talk about rewilding in the absence of what our role is in all of this. And, you know, I remember, and you know, you know, things like the, the criticism that places like NEP have been given for performing in a way that's still regenerative. I think it kind of plays to to really questioning what it is that we're trying to do with rewilding. You know, what what is rewilding really about? You know, when I when I started out reading about rewilding, it was all about, right, well, you know, you've got this kind of broken landscape or, you know, we broke it because we're, you know, we're the people and we broke the landscape. And so now what we've got to do is we've got to kind of fence it maybe plant some trees, maybe restore some peatland and then step back. You know, that in the in the good old days, I don't know what, what people think about rewilding now, but in the good old days, that was kind of what rewilding was. You know, you got a bit of impact at the front and then you just step back. And you think that's such an interesting way to look at it because it in no way addresses the root cause of why we got into this pickle in the first place. You know, it's funny, one of my favourite podcasters is a guy called Dr. Rangan Chatterjee. He's a, he's a medical doctor and he, he's a real advocate of lifestyle changes to improve your health and well-being. And one of the things that he always talks about is if there's anything, you know, if there's, if there's an illness, if there's a, you know, if there's something wrong, what is the root cause? The only way you're going to, uh, you know, address this and heal this is get to the root cause. And the root cause of why we're needing to rewild is because of our disconnect from the land. That's fundamentally is why we need to do rewilding now or we feel the impetus to do rewilding because as a society, as a group, as a species, we've lost our connection to the land, you know, through the commodification of nature over a period of time, which is probably quite short, you know, realistically in relation to our evolution, things have dramatically changed. And so our connection is lost. And so if we start to look at working with livestock and seeing our role in it and seeing how we can be stewards or guides, not managers, I, I don't believe we can manage land because if we try to manage land, we try to control land and that gets into a bit of a gray area. But if we can see a role for us and using our incredible talents as the top of the tree is that we are, we're really important in that. And so I don't see that there necessarily has to be a problem with working with livestock in this form, in a way in where we are still producing food, which is fundamentally at its core, regenerative. I can't see the problem personally. Others may, but that's where I stand on it. My experience with rewilding words, it means so many things to different people. And I mm. think you know, it's all about as long as you stay true to what it means to you and you're, what you're doing is generally beneficial, impactful for nature, then call it whatever you want and, and just get on with it. Let's not get wrapped around the axle about, well, this is not purist rewilding and blah, blah, blah. Because I think mm. maybe we haven't got enough on our plate to start arguing about the nuances at, at, at that stage. I guess on the kind of question of land management, one of the things I was particularly interested in having read your book is I know you've done a lot of replanting. And again, another one of the debates that I've come across in kind of rewilding is what yeah. you know, natural regeneration versus tree planting. And yeah. uh, I know you've had a lot of experience in that in your work in the borders as well. And I kind of, I guess I'm wondering what influenced that decision and yeah, what your reflections are on that. Yeah, really great question, Chloe. Really great question. Yeah. So massive tree hugger here. Yeah. Love, love trees. Don't think in some form we'll probably ever stop planting trees here at Limbrek. Yeah, I mean, I, I fell in love with trees back when I started working with the National Trust, which was back in kind of 2008, 2009. And 
I kind of I had exposure to trees in all sorts of different ways. So uh, back in those days, I it was more much more kind of practical role. So I, you know, would have worked chainsaws a lot, you know, felling trees, or I would have been surveying trees. So understanding, um, you know, kind of tree fungi and diseases, or I would have been planting trees or coppicing trees or all sorts of things. So I've been working with trees for lots and lots of years, writing management plans for trees, all sorts of different things. And then, yes, we went to the borders and that was very much where we were working on large scale reforestation. So one of the sites that I worked on, which is a kind of a flagship project, I think in the UK is called Carafran Wildwood, run by a charity called Borders Forest Trust. And so I worked at Carafran for two years and saw the impact that planting has had on a landscape which was largely devoid of much of anything at all. The reasons for, or if you want to say arguments for planting in that context at Carafran was seed source. There simply was no natural seed source. There was a lot of Sitka, but that was pretty much about it. So one of the main arguments for planting was if we're going to get diversity back, we need to reintroduce the species that may or may not have been here at some point based on our scientific data, but are likely to thrive, bring in more biodiversity and continue into the future. You know, nowadays with, we, we know so much, don't we? We always know too much with climate modelling and what happened before and what's going on in the future. You always have to start with a baseline and you'll never get full agreement on that. But that's where they started. And I think they started in the right place. So that in that situation was a, a really strong place for planting. Now, you know, say in contrast to that, you know, we live near very near Abernethy Forest, which is run and managed by the RSPB, where a lot of the work is very much, uh, there's some planting done, but a lot of it's about natural regeneration. You know, you've got this remnants and it's only remnants of an ancient Caledonian pine wood. Within it is lots and lots and lots of more recent planting that was planted for sort of commercial reasons, um, but it's now part of the, part of a reserve. But you've got a seed source there of classic Caledonian pine woodland. You've got your your pine, you've got your juniper, you've got your rowan, you've got your birch, and a few other bits and pieces. Solid Caledonian pine wood seed source is there. If you can get on top of the deer, you can keep your browsing low. Your seed source is there. So those are kind of two extremes of where you might sit. We've decided to take them both and do a little bit of everything. So at Limbrek, we have uh, we have some ancient Caledonian pine wood here, tiny, tiny, tiny bit. Um, so in some areas, that's regenerating. So in areas where it was regenerating well, we deer fenced. I don't like deer fences; they're ugly. They mimic they they limit movement in the landscape, but they're very, very, very effective. So we put a deer fence around one area. It's regenerating nicely. Um, it's regenerating at a good rate, especially with herbivore pressure down. So let's just leave that bit. But there was another area of hill ground where there was some regeneration. Um, but there was also some really nice, really ancient woodland that included things like aspen, which is so rare in this area, and hazel. And I'm not just talking like a wee aspen whip and a wee kind of hazel whip. These were massive trees and they were in the bottom of this gully that had kind of survived centuries of felling for shipbuilding or intensive farming. And there were these little relics that were kind of hanging on there going, we can live here too. And so that very much influenced our mindset of going, okay, so we've got this really nice area that's regenerating, but this other area, which is also regenerating, but there's these other species, let's look at what else could grow there. So we started to look at climate maps, we started to look at soil maps, and we started to think, do you know what? I think oak would grow here. And I think more aspen and more hazel, maybe hawthorn would grow here. What else? Bird cherry. We planted this whole melange 
of broadleaf species, alders as well, in and amongst this Caledonian pine wood, put a deer fence around it. And that was six years ago. You can now walk into that area and the aspen that we planted are three metres, four metres in high. We're starting to see oak trees at 350 metres above sea level that are a metre in height. And they're not struggling. Some are, but some are doing really well. And so for me, I'm like, well, that was a good decision. Because whilst we can see it in our static vision of that should or should not grow here, if it's going to be a species that's native or non-native, but is ultimately going to give beneficial qualities, then I'm okay with that. So what we now have is this incredible diverse landscape of some regeneration, uh, we've got some planting, but we've got diversity. And going forward, that's just going to spread. From a practical level, just I'm thinking about what we're going to be working towards on our project. Yes. Like, the areas that you fenced, you fenced in for the yes. for the planting purposes. Are there any herbivores on that at all, or is it just rested at the moment from in that perspective? Yeah, pretty much. There's the odd rascally hare uh, that will get in <laughs> now and again, and uh, rascally rabbit. But in the main, it is herbivore. It, it it's complete herbivore exclusion. And that is a temporary tool. That is a temporary tool. You know, we both t- joke about how we, we hope to be to live old enough to see the day when we can open the gate and allow the cattle into that woodland, allow pigs into that woodland, you know, have them play the role of a large herbivore and, and, and wild boar within that woodland as it then grows. And they will have a role to play in how it evolves as they would anywhere else. And that's what I really love about what we're trying to do is that we're kind of taking these tools and we're overseeing it all. But if everything doesn't come together, then none of it works. And so we can't step out ourselves and say, and then in 20 years time, we're never going to touch that again. We can do good things. So we should be a part of it. And we can we can work with our animal team to achieve that. That's a really, really inspiring vision. And and I guess I'm, well, it's making me think loads and I'm kind of mindful of times. But I think one of the one of the kind of other questions I wanted to ask about is more the kind of education outreach work that you're mm. doing. You know, I'm conscious that like it's first of all it's fantastic what you're doing in the 150 acres, but you know, you're trying to magnify the effects of that by inviting people and sharing your stories. And I, I suppose I'm wondering what what's kind of influenced that and what are your hope for kind of outcomes of that education outreach activities? So I think there's probably a number of things that have influenced our decision to kind of go down that route to this point. I think one of the the reasons has been seeing people's reaction to what it is that we're trying to do. So generally, when people come here and they see it, they're totally 100% in. And it's I kind of see Limbrek as a bit of a landscape of hope. You know, people come here and they go away feeling better than, usually feeling better than what they did when they arrived. And that's really powerful. And that's just the land doing it. That's really powerful because it kind of flies in the face of modern day fear mongering, doom, gloom, crisis, war, threat, fear. It just flies in the face of that. So one, we wanted to see if there was a way that we could use that to do our bit to making the world a better place. I think what a second reason was because we enjoy doing it. So, you know, I do a lot of the public facing stuff. So I'll do the tours. We, we kind of tag team on on the teaching on the courses but we really, we get a real buzz out of it. It can be exhausting. Oh my goodness. It can be so knackering. And, you know, by the end of the summer, and then, you know, especially now after a season of butchering and harvesting and all that, you're absolutely knackered. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we'll run maybe one of our four and a half day courses. And at the end of it, you can see the impact that it's made on people. And they then go away and make their changes. 
And so you're taking that pebble of information and that pebble is then going out in ripples, which are the people that have been on the course. And then they slowly make more and more waves. So seeing a way that we can make it that way, which way we enjoyed. And then the third reason for doing it was a purely business one was finance. So, you know, to run courses, to run tours was another way for us to make money. You know, as that phrase goes, making money from old rope. We live here. Yeah, yeah. We know about it. We work here. Nobody knows more about Limbrecht than we do. And nobody knows more about what we do than we do. So if we could turn that into a financial asset, then for us, that seemed like a really kind of positive thing to do. And you've, you've strayed into a territory that I, I love learning more about, which is the commercial side of life, because these things do, you, you have to exist. You have to continue mm. to exist. Um, so I'm, I'm curious as to kind of finding out, um, and maybe this is overly commercial word, but how long did it take you to break even or move into a place where you were comfortable that you were not to be going, going in the wrong direction from a finance perspective? Yeah, so I, th- I think it's an ever-moving feat, which is, what we've, which is what we've discovered. We could probably make a lot more money if we had a lot more animals, if we did a lot more of this, that and the other, but then it compromises our belief of you know only having the number of animals that we believe have regenerative impact on the land. So we have to, we're a multi-enterprise setup. I think what's interesting about our setup, though, is that everything at the end of the day comes back to the core things that we produce, which is food. So either in our kitchen garden or our beef, our pork, our eggs and our honey, everything just simply it's like a mushroom. It kind of spores from that. So if we haven't got any of those core things, we haven't got tours, we haven't got courses. Uh, We also have a private rental on site. You know, we don't have everything else that we do if it's not for that core enterprise. And what we've had to try and learn, and, and honestly, very honestly, Tom, what we're still learning is the financial viability of it all. But what I can say to you is that you know, at the end of the, you know, so far to this point, we we, st- we sort of shifted into to kind of really operating fully commercially from maybe like 2020, 2021. So quite okay. recently, yeah. um, up until that point, it was kind of dribs and drabs. Uh, it would have been 2020, but then COVID hit and that yeah. kind of kiboshed a lot of stuff. So it was more kind of 2021. So what we're what we're always trying to see is how that kind of works in the current climate. But what we've also learned, so we can do all of that. We can pay our bills at the end of the day. We eat really good food. Uh, we never go hungry. We never go cold. You know, we have everything that we need in life and we still have money to, you know, go on go on the odd holiday and go out for dinner. So, so really we have everything that we need. But what we need to value more is, and I mean this kind of in a, in a very holistic kind of social element, social world, is the commercialization or the value of well-being. And we tend to often, and I've been so guilty of this and still can be, of looking at the spreadsheet and going, we didn't make enough money or we've got to make more money from that. And, you know, and sometimes that is very true. And, Mm -hmm. you know, because I'm thinking, have we got enough money to replace the truck in five years when it's going to die? You know, you you, you get into that spiral, right? And especially Mm -hmm. from our situation whereby, you know, we've never really had, you know, much behind us. You know, it is very much, you know, every year, every year. But we need to, as a society, really value what is holistically in all of us. And that is our capabilities and our physical and mental well-being. So as we kind of go through this journey, it's like, yeah, we could make loads more money doing that. But is that going to make me happier? Mm -hmm. And if it's not going to make me happier, then it's not going to make my business any better. If might to a finance advisor make my business look better. But if I'm not happy, that's not making my business any better. So I'm going to choose the option of just what, what feels good. 
I, what I really appreciate there about is some of the courage that's needed to kind of step away from some of those dominant stories about that we need more things, that we need more money, and that is what determines success. And and actually being able to be brave enough to think about, well, well actually, what do I need and what do I need holistically is a really critical thing. And, you know, having worked in a kind of mental health context for a number of years, I w- also it really resonates with me what you're saying about the kind of disconnection from nature and how that affects not just nature, but, you know, our own mm-hmm. well-being. And I, I suppose I'm wondering what do you have any particular thoughts around how as a society we can help ourselves to become more connected with what is essentially part of us, which is the, the natural world? Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's it's a really good question, Chloe. And, and I, I don't think it's more pertinent in our times. And, and I have to be honest as well, because in some ways, because of the way that I live and because of the place that we live in, sometimes I feel very disconnected from just how disconnected people are to the natural <laughs> world quite honestly yeah. and so you know sometimes I, I you know like I, I said you know one of my favorite pub, podcasters rang on Saturday you know he talks so much about practical lifestyle changes to you know get people to reconnect to get people to feel better in themselves using the power of nature you know simple things like when the sun rises go out and look at it you know um, when you know if, if, if you're kind of busy in front of your laptop every day, take a 10 minute walk in nature. Those are all minimal things that somebody who's really fully in this world is advising. Now I'm coming at it from a completely different place because I live here all the time. You know, I'm surrounded by nature all the time and and I'm I'm very much hands-on as well in it, but I can still become disconnected just like anybody else. I can very easily become disconnected by freaking out about a spreadsheet or by having too much in my diary. You know, I, I become disconnected. It just looks different. And so whenever people ask me, kind of to your point, really, whenever people ask me about how do I make a practical difference or how do I make a practical change or how can I feel better in myself? I always say, well, there's, there's kind of two things that you can do. One is look at your world. If everything in your world is perfect, then you can look at changing everybody else's. But if it's not, then just focus on yours. Don't worry about everybody else. Just focus on yours because that's the only one that realistically you can change Mm -hmm. if it needs changing. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is if you want to do something practical, buy organic eggs. Now, I know that sounds like a really simple, tiny little thing. But what we started off first in terms of food production, apart from our own kitchen garden, was was hens. And that really gave us a gateway into learning about hens as animals. If you've never had, if you don't have hens, get hens. Everybody needs to have hens in their life. They'll just make you feel better. But, you know, that was our gateway into learning about keeping animals. But it was our gateway into learning about how animals are kept in the food systems that we have. And ch- hens, chickens, are it's, it's awful what we do to hens. It's absolutely abhorrent. Eggs are at the bottom in terms of our produce. They're at the bottom. They're the lowest value of what, you know, what it costs. Mm-hmm. So I always say to people, if you can even just make one shift into buying organic eggs, using your money to spend the extra one, one pound fifty to buy the organic rather than normal eggs. If you can make that change and then you take that premise of what I said earlier, that's now perfect in your life. If you can then get everybody else to make that change and buy organic eggs that ripple then becomes a wave. And with overnight, the power has come into the people's hands of changing the egg industry. Now, it's a really micro example of just a small practical change that people could make if they wanted to go away. And then that starts to raise all other questions in your life. So those are the two things that I would say to people. That, that's what you can do. But at the end of the day, it all starts with you. It only starts with you. And so don't become too overwhelmed with everything else. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's really wise advice because it's so easy when you're surrounded mm. by all the news stories and, and when you start thinking like it, to kind of set all these different levels of, you know, not just yeah, myself, my family, my community, my culture, my society, and you can you know, try and get one so quickly. So I think that's really that's wise advice. I'm going to try and hold on to because I have a tendency to get too far. And so one of the things I also would like to hold on to is diary being busy. Yeah, I'm dreadful. I know. <laughs> and yes. so I, I think... Probably on the next podcast, the top of the podcast, I'm going to ask you about your diary and how we help you get <laughs> less busy. You're going to help me take out. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Through the podcast. I'm not sure I feel like that. I'm so appreciate your time. And I think we could probably keep talking all day. But my just, I guess my final question is, you know, we're here at the very much the start of our project. We're, we like, feel so naive. Yeah. Let's listen to you. Like, oh, my God. We've got so much to learn. And you're going to give us one piece of advice in, you know, we're, what, six months in and we've done very little to the land so far apart from trying to look at it Excuse uh, me. okay wait okay a little we know really but yeah i guess i'm wondering what what, what you would suggest in terms of mm. for us to hold on to so i think what i would say first and foremost is the land is fine if you're not doing anything with it it's fine that's okay what you're actually really looking at is what do we want our impact to be what is it that we're looking to do and where is that coming from? You know, how are we wanting to reconnect with this piece of land? So that's the kind of questions that I would encourage you to ask yourself. But you don't need to do anything because it's absolutely fine. Mm-hmm. Your challenge is to figure out how you can then become an intrinsic part of it in a way that is positive, that is regenerative, that is sustainable, that is enriching, that is all of those things but in a way that's giving what it is that you need from it as well. I like it. Yeah. Awesome. Welcome. You're so welcome. It's been a a real pleasure to talk to you both. And I I genuinely wish you all the very best with your project. And you never know, one day we might make it down to visit you guys. You know, I I really fancy a bit of a a road trip to visit some of our ex-students, but also to see, you know, people like you guys here starting to do really incredible things. So no, massive, massive respect to you and huge, huge good luck on what you're doing. I don't know about you, Chloe, but halfway through that, I was already planning our road trip with our tent and when we can go up there and leave the kids with the uh, in-laws. I feel like the passion that Lynn has for the croft came through so clearly and it just makes you want to go and see and experience it. How she described it as like kind of landscape of hope. Yeah, it really kind of blew me away in that description. You can picture what you think the landscape of hope could look like from her description, but I actually think going there and experiencing it will be another level. And I think for me, what really resonated, or I guess what really struck me is, it's the power of the story as well, because I've read the book and I'll obviously put all the details out in the show notes, which is a really wonderful read, but it's their personal journey and their personal story that really spoke to me. And I think we could do with lots of those journeys in rewilding and conservation and nature recovery generally this kind of personal stories which I guess is a little bit what we're trying to do with our podcast and documenting our journey alongside that. So I'm curious there's a lot we covered and there's lots of things I know that you loved about that but what was the key takeaway was if you had to learn one thing from that or take anything away from that come on I I know what I know which one is by the way to you. Oh really okay that's this is an interesting marital test um so if you're going to force me to pick one, I think actually, surprisingly for me, the thing that struck me the most, and I guess this was kind of connected to her reflection after seven years into the project, is the value of rest. Ding, 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 ding. Really? Yes. Actually. Well, rest and clearing diaries were the two, the two things yeah. that I thought you could benefit from taking away. 
you know, I guess my pace of existence is generally one that is perhaps not always helpful. I really thought actually what is, in terms of her point around how nature is telling us that sometimes it needs to rest and then through that it rejuvenates. That's really made me think about where in my, our lives, do we have time for that rest and what does that look like and how that then helps us to rejuvenate. It's really helping me in my journey of saying, trying to say no to things, which is an ongoing challenge. It's an ongoing theoretical debate is what it is, Chloe. (laughs) I live in hope that one day it will turn into action. And I think following on from your point, it is that it's all well and good being busy, but whether it's pushing in the right direction or just being busy because you've always been busy, I think is important reflection to explore. And that's not aimed at you specifically. But, but even actually, because I had been aware of Lindbergh Croft and I'd been aware of the book, but obviously when we knew that the podcast was coming up, I kind of, rather than just it looking beautiful on my shelf, I took it down and really read it cover to cover. And actually that opportunity to sit and read a book properly, that's not something I'd done in what, six months? Because we've been so busy and actually it was so valuable just have the space to immerse myself in that story and to slow down in that way so I wanted to yeah, thank Lynch for the podcast and creating the opportunity for me to really kind of revisit something so I'm gonna place the same question back to you Tom and I I actually I have no idea what you're gonna reflect on from this interview so I'm gonna make a guess but what was it for you that stood out other than being amazing human beings and massively inspirational it's always easy to compare yourselves and I find my us comparing our position to theirs yeah. I think my key takeaway is like it is with me, everything in life if you can help your brain to do it is learn from them take the key takeaways that's relevant to you but don't try and pretend to be them you've got to be yourself and you've got to understand what what works for them doesn't necessarily won't necessarily work for us here and we've got to work out you know what our vision for our like she said to be fair that was her key takeaway to right at the end of the, yeah, of the interviews. Yeah. Work out what is, what is you, what is your truth. And so, again, I can't just remember, remember that, but that's exactly what it is. And I think that is the key takeaway. It's find our key truth. But then once you work out what it is, really go at it. And that's quite a hard thing to do. Like, you know, I was busy making plans for our market garden and our chickens and our having, you know, feeling so inspired by the work that Lynn and Sandra are doing. But, and then it, it's hard. It's sometimes difficult to know, actually, what is your truth? What is the thing that really drives you? That takes a bit of unpicking sometimes. And... I think it's okay not to know what your truth is until you have enough experience to find out what that is. And you only, you only have built experience by doing and frankly, doing and failing generally. Yeah, which is a hard thing to sort of tolerate the discomfort of failure. And, and for me as well, it's about, it depends a lot on the relationships you form and who comes along with you on that journey to help kind of create that shared vision. Like it's hard to have that in isolation. I mean, it is, but spinach, failed. Digger, wild boar. Semi failure, you know. I'm I'm racking up my failures no, pretty well. You're, you're a very good failure, <laughs> but uh, no, you're very good at, at helping but, me tolerate yeah. the idea of failure. On that note, <laughs> I guess it felt it left me feeling really excited about what we can, you know, what conversation we could be having on a podcast in seven years' time about what we've achieved here. Hundred percent. So that's it for today. I hope everybody enjoyed the podcast as much as as you can evidently hear that Chloe and I have. One thing I want to leave you with, if you have enjoyed this, we haven't said it for a few weeks, but it means a lot. If you could just, once you finish listening to this, just get your phone out, go on to wherever you rate, either on iTunes or on Spotify, give it a review and a rate. Uh, and that is a disproportionate effect on the, on the kind of rankings and therefore increases the number of listeners and hopefully other people can benefit from this. So until the next episode, I wish you adieu. Goodbye, everybody. Goodbye.